Aftershocks by Andrew James Chapter 5 Warning Signs Life became rhythmic for the next two years. Eventually, and with considerable effort, I managed to find a routine that felt normal. While I never completely fit in with the children at the Lutheran Academy, I was able to find a modicum of happiness on the playground, and even friends within my neighborhood with whom I shared my weekends. I never achieved what I would refer to as social status within that small community, or at least not in the way I demanded of myself. I always felt somehow plagued with the sense that I was different in some way from the other children, a feeling and perception that was perpetuated by the tiny distinctions between my family and others within the town. They were small, to be sure, but these little differences added up in a serious way and convinced me we were somehow out of place. After Sunday school each week, the children joined their parents in church, but I would be picked up by my mother and father outside the church doors, and we would go for walks at the local nature center, where my parents would walk before me, silently admiring the wildlife. The only break in that silence would come from one of them pointing out local plants or animals for me to learn about. At school, the students would all sit at long, fold-out tables during their lunch in the gymnasium and trade their brown bag snacks with one another an Oreo for Chips Ahoy or some Cheez-Its for a fruit roll-up, I would sit amidst them all with a plastic dish containing last night's orange roughy in a deep cream sauce or a Tupperware full of bolognese. My mom's cooking was something I would grow to appreciate in time, but it made the other children look at me quizzically, and suffice it to say, I had little to offer in the way of trades or barters. All of these differences were compounded by my very English accent, which I did all I could to bury for fear of being even more of an oddity. And despite these differences, I was nonetheless afforded a brief glimpse of what a normal life could be during that time. Morton was not a bad place to be a child. Art truly does mirror life, and I can describe no better an example than when I think back on the way I lived during those two short years. In this I mean that the images and portrayal shown so often in cinematic depiction of small towns is often far more accurate than one may expect, and Morton was the quintessential version of that small town life. It felt safe and warm and welcoming. I remember sitting at our dining room table on the first night at our new home, unopened boxes around us, eating a casserole cooked by our new neighbors and given us to it within hours of our arrival. They had come to the door, the woman dressed in a florid affair of gossamer and the man attired in his Sunday best, with a card in one hand and a warm home-cooked dinner in the other. That was the town we lived in, a town where men and women dressed up to meet the neighbors and parents down the street sent their kids to play with the new boy at the end of the block to make him feel welcome. It was good, old-timey values. Our life couldn't have been more traditional if it were in black and white. The neighborhood and the schools seemed a quiet place to me, full of ideals and a very private type of history, and everyone's brother or cousin was just a few streets over. As I've said, I believe, were it not for the eventuality of where life would take me, this would have been a good place to start from. Despite the potential of my success there, the move had caused my mother's demeanor to revert back to its previous iteration, which is to say, agitated. It was also around this time that I began to share in some of that agitation with my father. Always before I had been on the edge of these outbursts, and never drawn directly into the fray, I was now old enough to understand her frustrations to some degree, and with that awareness came my unwitting inclusion in her outbursts. While things did not reach their full height for some years to come, there were numerous moments that hinted at the relationship she and I would one day share. 
My mother was an incredibly persistent woman who had an unerring knack for consistency. Anything that infringed on the status quo was immediately met with the full force and might of her will. This showcase of her capabilities was second only to her drive for my success. I remember with some chagrin the first day she picked me up from school and I told her with overwhelming pride that I had my very first homework assignment. It sounded so grown up to say it out loud, and I waved the paper in front of her to show her the vocabulary list, all the words the teacher had demanded we know by the next day. That night, over dinner, my mom began quizzing me on the words. Each word that I would need to be able to define and spell, the list of words I was to know grew as the dinner went on and then continued long after, long after the list had been completed. Eventually, my night was over and I went to bed with a whole new appreciation for homework assignments. I didn't know where my mother found all the extra words she taught me that evening or what made her decide that was the night we were going to learn them all, but from that night on, homework would come to take on a new meaning to me. The obsession with my schoolwork gave my mother a constructive outlet for her frustrations with our setting. When that frustration was too much to bear, though, it would bubble up and take over and a different version of my mother would emerge. In these moments, I found myself suddenly drawn into the battles between my parents, and while I was never involved in the fights themselves, I nonetheless became a bystander of their war. Once more, I cannot with any certainty speak to the frequency of these outbursts, but they seemed of a certain to occur enough that their memory always overshadows the better moments of those days. In truth, both of my parents loved me dearly, and I have neither doubted that nor for any moment felt otherwise only that their affection towards me was often distracted by more important and personal needs. However, my mother's affection could be seen each night when we sat at the kitchen table together working through some aspect of my schoolwork, or learning newer things that I had not yet studied in class, of which when she discovered it was always with a disapproving eye and a slight upturn of the corners of her mouth as though she had suddenly tasted something altogether rotten. She was a strict tutor, and I learned quickly to be attentive to her teachings. Failure would result in that same anger bubbling back up and punishment for my ineptitude could be severe. My mother was at most times kind and loving, and it was only in these very brief moments that her actions would ever cause me to see her otherwise. I have countless memories of her smiling and laughing, but it is also around this time that my memories of the angry woman begin to emerge, memories of her rage sometimes feeling out of control. She became a dichotomy to me. At one moment, she could be sweet and loving and care for me with such ferocity that it would frighten me, but moments later, her care would almost seem to vanish, as though it were too much for her to handle, and the outpouring of her emotion would turn to anger. With nowhere to direct this anger, I would become the unsuspecting focus of it. I remember one blazing summer day in which a neighbor boy and I had gotten a hold of the hose in the front yard and had run around shooting cold water at one another while my mom had been on a walk around the neighborhood. She had returned and been furious. Without a word, she had grabbed me by the ear and pulled me into the house, where she proceeded to slap my legs repeatedly. I never understood what I had done to cause such a response. While it is entirely possible that there had been a water shortage and the use of a hose for lawn watering was forbidden during the daylight hours, or it is equally as possible we were supposed to be at dinner that evening or we were having company over, and now I would need to bathe again. None of these instructions or clarifications were ever delivered. Instead, I was left with red welts and a considerable amount of confusion as to the reason for the reprimand.
These events became common in which some form of punishment would be issued by my mother, often painful and involving bare skin with no explanation as to their cause. My legs became her favorite form of release when the overwhelming loneliness of the Midwest became too much for her and no other outlet existed. What to most would have been the simple actions of a child often turned into excuses for physical punishment, which always left me crying and unsure. A simple boo. As I jumped out at her, she rounded a corner, and I was slapped across the face. I had no idea why. I had done this countless times before. What caused this sudden reaction? If my toys were left on the stairs, they would be kicked into the hallway, and my mother would appear at the door to my room, her eyes ablaze, and despite my attempts to retreat from her wrath, she would corner me, pull me to her side, and begin her assault on my calves and thighs. I suppose then that sometimes I did understand what I had done that caused her to act that way towards me, but instead I should say that her actions were inconsistent. Always she would claim some act or event was the cause of her outburst, but my confusion was that there never seemed to be a line that defined what would cause that reaction from her, or that just a day earlier that same event had occurred without the angry outburst and all it had been fine. There existed a duality in her remonstrations with me. When the assumed crime I had committed could be explained and pointed to, and a lesson needed learned, my punishments were to be placed in a chair in the corner where I would sit, sometimes for 15 or 20 minutes, a lifetime at that age, until I had learned my lesson. Forget to hang my towel after my bath and I would be placed in the timeout chair. If I refused to drink my milk at dinner, I would be given the choice of the chair or the milk. Caught in a lie or late to get home from playing down the street and I would find the chair waiting for me. This form of punishment felt very earned and appropriate for me. I was able to easily clarify that the chair was immediately related to my infraction. It was often a tough punishment and sometimes I felt as though it were being overused, but it was fair and it was appropriate. The more physical punishments were something else entirely. And it is only now at this point in my life that I realize those punishments, the frustrated slaps and smacks and kicks, were not punishments, but instead were angry outbursts by a mother who had nowhere else to turn her loneliness and frustration. She was very alone in America, and that loneliness caused anger, and I became her outlet. After each event in which I would sit in my room with my eyes cast downward, crying and often rubbing at the places that I had just recently been berated, feeling the red hot skin raised up and swollen, I would find myself wondering what I had done. I would become more and more confused as I would sit there, my mind trying to trace the course of events that had led to this most recent event. I could easily connect my actions and behavior to the timeout chair. Indeed, sitting in that chair allowed me ample time to investigate my behavior with clarity. But this physical punishment seemed so misdirected. It seemed to be an act of rage, and I began to wonder if I wasn't simply making my mother unhappy. A belief of a deep flaw in myself began to form, and it would hold sway over me for many years. My actions to repair this flaw were extensive, but the most obvious and constant was the quest to confirm my mother was indeed happy with me. Besides working aggressively to be the top student, to behave as best as possible, and to avoid the timeout chair, I would repeatedly find myself asking my mother if she was okay. It became a tireless task and a tireless effort, and every slight mannerism that I interpreted as a possible cause for alarm on her end was met with my query, what's wrong? Are you okay? Any possible hint of her disappointment in me, any mood that was slightly out of the ordinary, 
would begin an immediate chain reaction and an interrogation would commence, I would constantly seek to reinforce that things were going well, and that I had not in some way disappointed her. I drove myself to distraction, constantly looking to verify that she was indeed happy with me, and it became my mission to be sure I was not the reason for any sadness on her part. My world was balanced on her needs. My concerns and questions became so incessant and frustrating for her that one day she informed me she would no longer show any emotion to me at all. Since I insisted on asking her so constantly for her reassurance that nothing was wrong, she would act like nothing was wrong, but nothing would be right either. For days she spoke, walked, and acted as though a perfect robot. She expressed no smile or sense of joy, nor any sense of frustration or anger. I was completely lost as to how to handle this situation. At eight years old, I had no clue what to do with this new, emotionless woman that I was dealing with, and so I begged her to please stop if I promised I would no longer ask if everything was okay. She eventually acquiesced and things went back to normal. Well, they went back to how they had been before that point, which is to say, things were strained. We spent two more years in Morton before once again being moved. I was nine years old when we were relocated to Miami, Florida. I look back now and wish we had never moved to Florida. I wish my father had said no to this project and that we had stayed in Morton amongst the cornfields and small town life. Instead, we left Morton and we relocated to southern Florida where everything in my world changed.